Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd get a Bible out and open it up to Genesis chapter 3, that will be most helpful. And really, if ever there was a sermon that you needed to open up a Bible for, this one is it. I think it's extremely important that we all be looking in the Bible this morning, and I think you'll see why here in just a couple of moments. Genesis chapter 3 will be our first stop. And as you're turning there, let me just say how good it is to see everyone this fine morning. It is just a, well, it's starting to get kind of overcast. I was going to say it was real hot and kind of nasty, but maybe some of this overcast, maybe we'll get a little bit of rain, maybe it might cool things off just a little bit. But it's a good day nonetheless, because it is the Lord's Day, it is the first day of the week, it is the day that Christians come together to uh, remember Jesus Christ and to worship and to honor and glorify God and I trust that we've done that this morning already as we've sung these great songs and as we went to our Father in prayer. Sometimes just sometimes a phrase in a prayer, just the turn of a phrase just catches your attention. And Brian, as he talked about God being our beginning and our end, that absolutely is the case. And we need to be thinking about that as we are worshiping God. He is our beginning and our end. So thankful that we can be here this Lord's Day morning. I am presenting this morning another installment in our year-long preaching theme on taking sin seriously. And I knew that at some point this year, if we were going to get serious about sin, we'd need to spend just a few minutes talking about the author of sin. And in fact, we're going to do that not just this morning, we're going to do that this evening as well in a special edition of Q&A. But let's talk this morning about the author of sin. Let's read together in Genesis the third chapter. I'm reading here beginning in verse 1. Genesis 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither should you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And there it is. Right there in Genesis chapter 3, is the very first mention of the most sinister adversary that man has ever known. Right there in the garden of paradise is our introduction to that serpent that we know as the devil. Unfortunately, Genesis chapter 3 will not be his last appearance. Because all throughout the Bible, the devil's fingerprints are found as he wreaks havoc in the lives of every man, woman, and child on the face of the earth. When Cain kills Abel, when the earth is filled with wickedness and God must destroy it by flood, when Israel falls into idolatry, when David commits adultery with Bathsheba, When Judas betrays Jesus, when the church at Corinth is experiencing division, all of that is the result of one individual, the devil. Yet how much do you really know about the devil? You know, it seems to me that whenever people do take an interest in the devil and want to sit down and try to learn about the devil, it seems that people generally end up focusing on the two areas that we seem to know the very least about the devil. The first thing that people always seem to want to know about the devil is, 
are his origins. Where did the devil come from? How did the devil come into existence? How did he come to be the way that he is? And I am going to talk about that particular question this evening. And then the second thing that people always seem to want to know about as it pertains to the devil is, what about demon possession? What about the devil and his demons and people being possessed by demons? And while I certainly do appreciate people's interest in those two areas, the fact of the matter is, the Bible says very little about demon possession And the Bible really doesn't say anything at all about the origins of the devil. And so I don't think it does us really any good at all to speculate about things concerning the devil that the Bible just doesn't address. But this morning, what I'd like for us to do is I'd like for us to look at what the Bible does say about the devil. Instead of us talking about things that we don't know, instead of us speculating about things that we cannot know, How about instead we just search the Bible to see what we can know and must know and need to know about the devil. And that's exactly what I want to do this morning. And I want to do that in a a slightly different way. In fact, I want to do this in a way that I have only done three other times before. I've done it once each year for the first three years that I've been here. And this will make the fourth straight year. Usually when I preach... I'm going to preach on a topic or a particular passage of Scripture. We're going to read that Scripture, going to explain it, going to discuss it, going to try to draw out all kinds of applications for our lives. I'm going to try to say some things to motivate us to to make application of those things in our lives. So things that will help us to be better equipped to be servants of the Lord. And there certainly is a place for that kind of preaching. If you stick around long enough, I will do more of that kind of preaching. But on some subjects... The Bible speaks with such clarity and with such force that what is really best for preachers to do is just kind of stand back. Just kind of get out of the way and just let the Bible speak. And so this morning, I am relinquishing the pulpit to the inspired Word of God. My goal this morning is to read everything in the New Testament about the devil. Now, we might not get quite there, but we should get awfully close to reading everything that we possibly can in the New Testament about the devil, who he is, what he does. We want to know what the Bible says about him. And that is why this morning it is incredibly important that you have a Bible out, digital or paper or whatever. you're. Maybe you've got a scroll, roll that scroll out. Let's get those Bibles working this morning. And I would even caution some of you, I know we got lots of note takers. I'd even caution you about note taking because I'm going to be working through these rather rapidly. It'll be hard to take notes and follow along in the Scripture at the same time. Maybe if you've got a husband and wife that are kind of tandem, one of you got the Bible and one of you taking notes, maybe that'll work all out. But for this morning... Let's just let God's Word do the speaking as we see what the Bible has to say about the devil. And I am going to try to divide these references up so that we can sort of make sense of them in a practical sort of way. And at the end, I will have just a little bit of comment by way of application, but mostly mostly I just want to let the Bible do all the talking today. Let's look first of all at what the Bible has to say about His name. What kinds of names and descriptions are given to that serpent that we first meet there in Genesis chapter 3? Well, let's just start that in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3 and in verse 8, it is there that we get this first name or description in 1 John chapter 3 
And in verse 8, John writes this. 1 John 3, verse 8. John writes, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. There's that probably most well-known name of the devil. This is the one we probably teach our kids when they're very young. That name is used about 34 times in the New Testament. It is a very popular name for him. Look in Matthew 16. In Matthew the 16th chapter, this might be, if devil is number one, this one's probably number two. In Matthew chapter 16, listen to Jesus here. In Matthew 16, look in verse 23. In Matthew 16, Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That name, Satan, is found about 36 times in the New Testament, and that is a name that means adversary. What an appropriate title, that he is our adversary. If you're still here in Matthew, just turn back a couple of pages. Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, look at how the devil is described here. In Matthew chapter 13, look in verse 39. In Matthew 13 and in verse 39, this is in the parable of the weeds, and Jesus is explaining the parable. He says, the enemy, the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So he is referred to here as our enemy, as the enemy. Let's add to that what Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 3. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm reading here in verse number 5. In 1 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 5, Paul says the following, 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 5, talking about his efforts and and the work that he's doing and trying to encourage these brethren. Verse 5, he says, For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter The tempter had tempted you and that our labor would be in vain. The devil is the tempter, Paul says. In 1 John again, this time in chapter 2. In 1 John chapter 2, I'm reading here in verse 13. In 1 John 2 and in verse 13, John says this, 1 John 2, 13, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome... The evil one. The evil one. Lots of people might be described as evil, but he is the evil one. In 2 Corinthians now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, I'm looking here at verse 4. In 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul says here that in their case, talking about people who've been Uh, blinded, there's a veil that's keeping them from seeing the greatness of the gospel. Verse 4, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He is the God of this world. In Ephesians now, in Ephesians 2, if that description there of the God of this world, if that wasn't frightening enough, Ephesians 2 will take that to another level. In Ephesians 2 and in verse 2, there Paul says, Ephesians 2 verse 2, he says, You were once dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Boy, that's a... 
I don't know, there's just something about that title that really, really just kind of gets at me. And there's something frightening about that. The Prince of the Power of the Air. In Revelation now, in Revelation chapter 20. Notice a couple of passages in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 20, look in verse number 2. In Revelation 20 and in verse 2, John is able to see some amazing visions, some uh, this apocalyptic sorts of things. In Revelation 20 and verse 2, he says that he sees the dragon, talking about this angel, this angel sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A couple of descriptions right there, that he is this great dragon, that he is that ancient serpent. And John just tells us, he's talking about Satan there. If you're still in Revelation, turn to chapter 12. In Revelation 12, look in verse 10. In Revelation 12 and in verse 10, John says this, He says, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser, the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. The devil is the accuser of the brethren. That's a special and very distinct kind of title for the devil. Then look in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8 and in verse 44, let's listen to Jesus once again. In John 8 and in verse 44, Jesus says this. In John 8 and verse 44, Jesus says, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Let's just stop right there. Just stop and take a look at what the Bible says. It is extremely descriptive. And as I've said already, it is in some ways terrifying to try to fathom that we are up against such a fearsome foe. In fact, I want to call your attention to two more very special names that are ascribed to the devil. Look in Matthew chapter 12. In Matthew chapter 12, the Pharisees used this name whenever they heard that Jesus was casting out demons. In Matthew chapter 12, look here in verse 24. In Matthew 12 verse 24, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, or maybe your Bible says Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Beelzebub is a Hebrew term that literally means the Lord of the flies. And if you continue on reading in those following verses there, Jesus ascribes that name to Satan. Then let me add to that 2 Corinthians 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul uses another unique term. In 2 Corinthians 6, look in verse 15. In 2 Corinthians 6 and in verse 15, Paul says here, What accord has Christ with Belial? Notice kind of the juxtaposition there. Christ, and on the other end of the spectrum is Belial. That is a Hebrew word and it means worthless or scoundrel. Now I'll say again, Just hearing what the Bible calls our enemy, that ought to be more than enough to get our attention, shouldn't it? If all we knew about the devil were just these things that the Bible says, 
that would give my attention, wouldn't it you? But you know what? It's not just that he has these terrifying names. We need to spend a minute or two as well talking about what it is that he actually does. What does the Bible then say about the work, the activity of the devil? Well, let's just start by noticing what might be the most obvious thing. Look at Matthew, the fourth chapter. In Matthew chapter 4, if you were to ask just about anybody, if you were to ask like our kids, what does the devil do? What's the primary work of the devil? This would probably be the immediate answer. In Matthew chapter 4, look in verse 1. In Matthew 4 verse 1, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Probably the most well-known work of the devil is that he tempts people to sin. In fact, that's going to kind of be the large umbrella over which all of the other things that we'll talk about here in just a moment really kind of fall under. Jesus was even tempted by the devil. The devil is so bold and so brazen that he will even tempt the very Son of God himself. In Mark the fourth chapter, let's get more specific about that. In Mark chapter 4, look in verse 15. This is the parable of the sower. And look at what Jesus says there. He's kind of describing what the uh, the ground and the seeds and all this, what all of it represents. In Mark 4, look in verse 15. Jesus says there, These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and he takes away the word that is sown in them. One of the works that the devil is involved in just all of the time is taking away the Word. As soon as the Word gets into people's hearts, get it out of there. Don't don't even let it get into people's hearts. The devil's there to snatch it away. Look at 1 Peter now, in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5, I'm reading here in verse 8. Here's a very vivid description of the devil and his work. In 1 Peter chapter 5, in verse number 8, Peter says here, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The devil is patrolling this earth. This is his domain. He's the God of this world. He is patrolling the earth, seeking for someone to devour. He's looking for you. That's what that verse just said. He's looking for you. In 1 Corinthians now, in 1 Corinthians 7, here's maybe an aspect of the devil's work that maybe we don't really think about and ascribe specifically to the devil. But in 1 Corinthians 7, I'm reading here in verse 5, Paul's giving some instructions about marriage. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 5. He says to husbands and wives, Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. One of the things that the devil is very active in doing is destroying marriages. You think of every marriage that you have ever known that ended because of adultery, or maybe just ended just because of just bad attitudes. It could have been any number of things. Who was behind that? The Bible says the devil was behind that. In Luke, the 22nd chapter. In Luke chapter 22, talking about the work of the devil. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus is talking with Peter. And he says this in Luke 22. We read earlier that verse where... Jesus was talking to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. It's not because Peter was actually Satan, but it really says something about how the devil was keenly interested in Simon Peter. And we get even more evidence of that here in Luke 22. Look in verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, 
Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like the wheat. How about that? That the devil goes around making demands even to the Lord. How arrogant he is. Look at Acts the 5th chapter now in Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5 in verse 3, this is the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And as Peter confronts them about their sin, Acts 5 verse 3, Peter said to them, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? The devil puts evil into people's hearts. Now, that does not mean to imply that the devil overrides a person's free will. But that seed, that thought of sin, the devil's the one that plants that. And then it is you and I that decides to water that and to feed it and to cause it to grow and to create full-blown sin. In 2 Corinthians again, look in chapter 11. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says this about the devil. Very helpful for us because it helps us to always then be on guard. In 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14, Paul says here, he says, No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The devil will disguise himself to us in order to trick us. And that is his M.O., his deception and lies and trickery. In 2 Thessalonians, to take that a step further, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm reading in verse 9. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look in verse 9. Paul writes here that the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. Not only does he use these false disguises, but the devil will even use false signs, false wonders to get people to believe his lies. In 1 Thessalonians, just drop back a page or two, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I'm reading in verse 18. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 18, Paul is talking about how it was his his desire to come there to Thessalonica. Notice what he says about that. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 18. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 18, he says, We wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Think about that for a moment. That Satan hinders the work of the gospel. When I'm up here preaching, the devil is at work out there. He is trying to hinder the gospel getting into your mind and getting into your heart. When you talk to your neighbor about the Bible or about spiritual things, the devil is right there trying to frustrate and to mess up those efforts. He's all about that work. Let me add one more to this list in Luke 13. In Luke 13 and in verse 16, we're told here something about the devil, and Jesus is the one who helps us to see this. In Luke 13 and in verse 16, this is talking about this woman who was afflicted with a disabling spirit. In Luke 13 verse 16, Jesus says, Ought not this woman... A daughter of Abraham, whom Satan had bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day. Jesus indicates here that Satan, evil, binds and afflicts people with physical maladies, physical sickness and illness. Now, just look at all of that for a moment. What part of that looks insignificant? What part of that says that we should not take the devil seriously? Again and again and again, the Bible is saying, look at what he does. Look at the destructive power that the devil wields. 
Which would then give me an opportunity to make a couple of very special reminders to you about the work of the devil. Look, first of all, in Acts 26. In Acts 26, look in verse 18. This really should be evident to us by all of the verses that we've already read, but Acts 26 just says it even more plainly. In Acts 26 and in verse 18, this is Paul giving his defense before Agrippa. He's recounting his conversion story, how Jesus spoke to him on the road to Damascus. Verse 18, he tells Paul, you're going to go to the Gentiles to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Jesus says, the Bible says, that Satan has power. And we ought not minimize that. We ought not laugh about that. The devil has power here upon this earth. Let me take that a notch further in Ephesians 6 now. In Ephesians chapter 6, look in verse 11. In Ephesians 6, as Paul is telling us about getting equipped with the armor of God. Why do we need the armor of God? Why is that so important? Ephesians 6 verse 11 tells us, Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes or the wiles of the devil. You know what that passage tells me? That passage tells me that the devil has a plan. You know, we often talk about God's plan of salvation, God's scheme of redemption for man, and all of that's absolutely true. But you know what? The devil has his own scheme. The devil has his own plans, and it is a plan for you to be lost, and to be lost for all of eternity. The devil has power. The devil has a plan. Let's take that one more step further in 2 Corinthians 11 again. In 2 Corinthians 11, we read verse 14 a moment ago that talked about how the devil disguises himself in order to trick people. In 2 Corinthians 11, look in verse 15. In the very next verse, verse 15, 2 Corinthians 11, I'm in 1 Corinthians 11. Second Corinthians, I was about to read about the Lord's Supper. In 2 Corinthians 11, reading verse 15, there Paul writes, So it is no surprise, it is no surprise if the devil's servants if they also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. The devil has power on this earth. The devil is trying to execute a plan on this earth. And one of the things that he has to execute that plan are helpers. He has helpers in his unholy kingdom who assist him in carrying out his wicked and destructive plans. Now, we've read a lot of verses this morning. And I think by reading these verses, we've learned a lot. By reading more than, by my count, more than two dozen passages this morning, we've just let the Bible tell us very plainly, and just by the sheer volume of passages, the Bible has told us what we need to know about our enemy. Let me now just very briefly kind of consolidate and pack all of this into three basic takeaways, and the lesson will be yours this morning. First and foremost... I would hope that we have learned this morning, if we didn't already know this before, that the devil is very, very real. That he is alive and that he is active in our present world today. You know, many people today would have us to believe just the opposite. Many people in our society today, they're just so, they're just so much more intellectual than we are. And so they would just have us to believe that we're just believing fairy tales. The devil is just imaginary. It's something that those church fathers came up with centuries ago to just try to, you know, kind of keep people in line. 
The devil's just a figment of our imaginations. Or better yet, the devil's that, he's that silly little red guy. You know what I'm talking about? Little red guy, little horns, got a little tail and the pitchfork, and he goes around poking people in the tuchus to make them do mischief. And that's the picture of the devil. That's not the devil. The Bible tells us the opposite of what our society says. God's Word says that the devil is your enemy. That he is your adversary. That he is in fact seeking to devour you. And he is working overtime every minute of every day to destroy your soul. That, that's worth taking seriously. Secondly though, the Bible is also telling us that the devil is the source of many, many, many of our problems. Much of what goes on in the world today, much of what goes wrong in the world today, happens as a result of the devil's trickery, of the devil's deception and the devil's lies. The devil makes wrong seem right. He makes folly seem wise. He makes sin look innocent. He will keep the Scripture from getting into your heart, as we read from the parable of the sower. And even if that seed does get into your heart, what he will do is he will twist it. He will contort it and manipulate it so that you can't really understand it. So that you cannot apply it and you cannot live out that word. The devil is behind crime. He is behind racism. He is behind wars. He is even, as Jesus says, he is even behind some sickness. And all too often, the world looks at all that bad stuff and the world points the finger at who? The world blames God for that. God, why would you allow that to happen? Why would such a good God allow such suffering and awful, awful, terrible things to happen in this world? And you know good and well every time someone says that, the devil is just laughing. The devil loves that. He loves it when people accuse God of the things that he is in fact responsible for. Let's be people who are going to put the blame where it squarely belongs. It is the devil who is responsible for all of the evil and the heartache and the despair and the pain that exists in our physical realm. And then finally this morning, and this is so important, and I want our young people especially to hear this. Because we've read a lot of verses this morning that really might strike terror in the hearts of a young person. It just sounds like, man, the devil just seems too great for us. It just seems so frightening. But I want you to understand, young people and all people, that the devil can be defeated. We've read all these things about the power and the nature and the work of the devil, and it kind of leaves us sometimes just kind of quaking in our boots. And that is what the devil wants. He wants us to be quaking in our boots. But the Bible tells us that we can defeat Him. And the Bible tells us how that is possible. Look, first of all, in James 4, two more verses this morning, and it's all yours. In James chapter 4, look in verse number 7. In James chapter 4, and in verse 7, James says the following. James 4, verse 7. James says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil... And he will flee from you. In some ways, the devil is the devil's kind of like the big bad bully. The big bad bully who's always just kind of throwing his weight around. And he just thinks he's got everybody right under his thumb. But you know what? Just as is the case with the school bully or any other kind of bully, as soon as you stand up to him, as soon as you call his bluff, he will tuck his tail and he will run in the other direction. Maybe just for a time, but he will leave you. James says, you can stand up to the devil. You can stand up to him. And while it is true that on our own, we'd never be able to stand up to the devil. 
We would not stand a chance against the devil if it's just Josh McKibben versus Satan. But this is why we need this last verse. Look in Romans 16. In Romans 16 and in verse 20, it's not about me being on just my own side. It's just me versus Satan. No, Romans 16 verse 20 says this. Romans 16 verse 20, as Paul is concluding this letter to the Romans, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. What Paul says, and what all the Bible says, is that when you are on God's side, that it is Satan who is the one who does not stand a chance. The Bible assures us that even though our adversary is powerful and he is fearsome, the Bible promises us that he can be defeated. And he can be defeated thanks to the work of one man. His name is Jesus the Christ. In fact, if you were to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 where we began this morning, and if you were to drop on down to about verse 15 of that chapter, you would notice that God says that He will bruise the serpent's head. Who's the He? The He is Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for every single man, woman, and child to defeat the devil, which is why we now extend the invitation of Jesus the Christ. It is your opportunity right now to appropriate the truth of the gospel in your life so that you can in fact say, I'm on the winning side. I'm on the side that has defeated Satan. Make no mistake about it. The devil does not want you to obey the gospel. He absolutely does not want that. He first of all doesn't even want you to hear the word. But you have heard the word this morning. Well, even if you do hear it, the devil doesn't want you to believe it. He doesn't want you to actually accept that as the truth in your heart. But even if you do believe it, the devil doesn't want you to act upon it. He doesn't want you to confess your faith in Christ. He doesn't want you to repent and turn from sin. He sure doesn't want you to be baptized in water for the forgiveness of those sins. And he absolutely does not want you to be faithful. Even if you go through all of those steps to become a Christian, he doesn't want you to be faithful to the Lord. That makes him very, very upset. And even if you do fall along the way, the devil's temptations get the best of you and you fall back in sin. The devil absolutely does not want you to return to God. Doesn't want you to repent. Doesn't want you to humble yourself before the Lord and seek His pardon once again. But this morning you have the opportunity to do whatever those things might be lacking in your life. This is your opportunity today to be right with God. I say all of this because there are people in this audience this morning who are of an age of accountability, who are actually kind of well past the point when you should have been taking steps to become a Christian. I want you to understand this morning that if you're not a child of God and you understand, you understand about all that. It's not an issue of a knowledge thing. It's just an action thing. Do you understand that the reason you have not acted is because you have allowed, by your choice, you have allowed the devil to have that power over you? Are you going to continue to allow him to have that power? Why would you allow the devil to have that kind of power and authority over your life and over your eternal soul? Make this moment, this very hour, the day that all of that changes. The script gets rewritten entirely. I'm no longer under the power and control and the authority of the devil. From this moment on, I'm under the power and the control and the authority of King Jesus my Lord. Can we help you this morning to serve the Lord? If so, make your way down front while we stand and while we sing.